Will you bow your heads with me, pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us together here today for the purpose of worshiping you. And so, God, our hope is that the worship that we have given you throughout the week, the way that we have praised you and obeyed you, lived for you, God, we pray that that would all culminate right now as we come together with our families and brothers and sisters and publicly declare our love for you, our devotion to you. So we pray that you would be glorified and honored here this morning. We're thankful. We thank you for this past week. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the truth that it reminded us of, that Christ, the Savior, is born. We thank you for that truth that brings joy, which transcends all of our circumstances and sorrow. We're thankful for the many gifts that you've given us all through Jesus Christ. So we're a blessed people, a people who have been filled to the brim, who are overflowing with good gifts from you. God, we ask that today you would, through the preaching of your word, that you would save us, that you would sanctify us, that you would change us. Um, We come before you, God, with souls, souls that are needy, that need help, that are incapable of doing what we need to do, what we ought to do, the good that you've called us to do without your help. So we pray that you would help us. Help us through the preaching of your word this morning. Speak deeply and true. And give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we would be shaken, God, and and hear things that are good for us, that lead us in a way that is everlasting. God, we thank you for our volunteers that are here today who are willing to spend time with our kids now. Thank you for those who will be um, holding uh, the babies in the nursery and praying over them and singing over them and cherishing them. We thank you for those who are willing to share the gospel with our children in the other classes. We're glad, Lord, that you have called others to draw alongside parents and to minister the gospel and the best news ever to these little hearts that you have us here today. These blessings, these rewards that you have given us. God, we pray that in everything we say and in everything we think, in everything we do in the next hour, that your name would be lifted high, that you would be exalted, that there would be no focus and no attention that is on us except in a way that brings you honor and glory. Pray that you would, as always, be the, be the hero that would ring through our stories and our preaching and our prayers and our songs so that we would give you, God, the worship you deserve. We pray and ask this in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. If you've got kids that you'd like to take to class, you can be dismissed to take them now. Let me give you a few announcements. A few announcements, a few things for you to be thinking about that are coming up. Some usual announcements first. One is that we have a couple ways that you can get involved beyond Sunday morning here 
at Veritas. One of those is on the city, and the city is our online community. It's where we connect with one another virtually, which is weird throughout the week, but it's helpful and it's necessary in the, in the world we live in. So uh, the city is our online network that we use to facilitate that. So if you're not on the city, let them know out here. Let one of our hosts know or go to the information table or the, or the bookstore, and we want to get you uh, an invitation so that you can get on the city. We've got some groups there, got some ways you can interact with other people and get messages to them and, and see what's going on and, and be a part of uh, announcements that we communicate that way. So I want to point you to the city. I um, also want to point you to our website. Our website is also meant to be a place where we, uh, we communicate with each other and you know what's happening now and in the future here at Veritas. So I want to send you to the website. Um, and then third, I want to remind you that we've got community groups. So I know a lot of you are part of community group. I know for some of you it's not possible, but there may be some of you it's a possibility and you haven't taken that step yet. We want to encourage you to, to take that step. All community groups are is just people who call Veritas their church home, and they're gathering in homes throughout the week. Uh, depending on which group you go to, you may, you may see and, and find some, some different things. Uh, some of them may have a lot of kids, some of them are little kids, so some of them are loud, some of them are quiet. You can, you can bet you're going to get food because we love food here. Uh, you're going to have food, you're going to pray, and you're going to have a, a platform and a context where you can, you can get to know some other people. So if that's something that you'd like to do, and, and, and if you're sticking around, we encourage you to do that. Uh, that's a way that you can, you can fulfill that. Now, a couple specific things that are, that are coming up. One is on Wednesday, we've got our second um, midweek service. And you are all invited to come be a part of it this Wednesday night at, at 6 o'clock. So what we're doing is we're setting aside the first Wednesday of every month to have a midweek service. Okay, and so the next one is 6 o'clock on Wednesday. It's an opportunity for those who call Veritas their church home to, to come together for, for additional fellowship, basically. Especially those of you who can't make it to a community group regularly, it might be a, a great opportunity for you. Uh, so it doesn't look exactly like what we do on Sunday morning. We've got the kids in here with us the whole time, so we... Um, to help with that, to help parents, we shorten the service to about an hour. Uh, we, we spend some specific time um, praying, even specific needs that we might have as a church family. And then the teaching portion is much shorter than what we have on Sunday. And it's really, it's really targeted and geared towards us as a church family. Whereas on Sundays, we typically go expositionally verse by verse through books of the Bible. On those Wednesday nights, we might have a devotion that's especially poignant to us as a, as a church family. So you can expect that. And then we've got the food afterwards that is for, uh, uh, for you to interact with one another and have some fellowship. It's trying, to, it's trying to promote that. So if you can be here, please, if you call Veritas your home, we really want you to... We want that to become important to you. So this Wednesday, 6 p.m. here. I was asked to mention this. While there is food that is available afterwards, I do want to prepare your, your hearts and your stomachs. It's going to be dessert food. So, uh, so if, you've got, if you've got little kids, you know that could be a disaster. So we want you to just have a, have a heads up so that you can prepare your children and tell them they're, they're to have no dessert or, or, or one dessert or, or whatever it is. Those of you with little kids, you know what my family goes through when we come and there's desserts put out. So just to prepare you, but as well, I guess there are some people who came the last time we did it and they were hoping for like a full-on spread. You didn't eat dinner and you're looking for the spaghetti pot and it wasn't here. So it's only dessert food. So 
unless you want to eat dessert for dinner, which nothing wrong with that, um, be prepared that that's what's going to going to be going on. Okay, second thing, um, second specific announcement on January 16th at 6 p.m. in just a couple weeks, um, if you currently work with uh, the Veritas, if you currently work with the children, um, or if you're thinking about working with the children, you need to be here on the 16th at 6 p.m. So we've got a number of volunteers who serve every Sunday, but we also need more. So if that's something that you're thinking about and you're willing to, to for that portion of the service, be over here, and whether it's in the nursery, just you know, cuddling babies and, and praying to them and singing to them and just having fun in there, or it's with the, the little kids, um, sharing uh, some curriculum with them and teaching them the gospel and really helping parents in that way. Um, if that's something that you're interested in or you'd like to do, we, we need more help doing that. And so this would be a great first step. Come on the 16th at 6 p.m. And if you're already serving in that ministry, unless for some reason you absolutely can't make it, it is mandatory. We want you to be here on the 16th at at 6 p.m. I'll be going over again as a bit of a refresher, really what the, the vision is for that ministry and what our burden for children is here at Veritas. So I'm thinking as well, parents, if you want to come and hear that, that could be helpful. So let me open it up to you as well. But so I'll be sharing what what our burden is here for for children and ministering to children. And then Lisa Nichols, who oversees much of what we do with our kids, she's going to be going over some new curriculum that is based on the Jesus Storybook Bible that we're, we're super excited about. She's going to be going over that new curriculum. And so we're going to want everybody on the, on the same page. So if you can't be here, um, let her know. Uh, you can get a hold of her on the city. But if, there's, if you can be here, please make sure that you, you make that a priority. That is January 16th at 6 p.m. And then our midweek service this Wednesday at, at 6 p.m. Normally what we do at this part of our uh, service is we read the, read the sermon text. Okay? But we're doing something a little different uh, this morning and next week. So for those of you who love change, right, you're going to love it. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to start our uh, Genesis sermon series. It, I'm really excited about that. I might be the only one, but I'm really excited. My favorite thing to preach on is Old Testament books of history. So, um, And I don't think we've done that since Judges, so I'm excited. Um, what I want to do for the next couple weeks, though, okay, until we get back to our verse-by-verse, book-by-book, which is what we normally do, is I want to give a couple messages today and next Sunday that I hope will be foundational and helpful for the sermon series that we're going to be getting into. We're going to spend at least all of 2013 looking at the book of of Genesis. Um, But I want to, for the next couple weeks, um, give you some things that might be helpful in preparing each of us for that long sermon series. One reason is that we're going Old Testament. And the Old Testament is, is, a, is, a, is a, a por- the, the portion of Scripture that, for whatever reason, many Christians struggle with or, or have a hard time with. And, and, and many Christians find themselves reading the New Testament more than the Old Testament. And the New Testament is sort of like the Old Testament 2.0 to them. And it got a, you know, Old Testament was okay, but it needed an upgrade, and we got the upgrade in the New Testament, and so we throw out... So, we don't have necessarily a great understanding of the story of the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at the very first book 
the very first book of Genesis and spending quite a bit of time. So here's what I'd like to do. Today and next Sunday, I want to give a sort of overview of your Bible. An overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I don't want this to come across. I'm going to work hard. You can pray for this. I don't want this to come across like a classroom. And I don't want this to come across like teaching. Because we really believe that Sunday morning worship is not the place for teaching, but the place for preaching. Okay, and the difference between preaching and teaching is that you're not just given information in preaching. You're told to do something with that information, right? Preaching comes with a, a now what, an application, an exhortation, and a charge, Lord willing, to, to go and do something with the information that you've got. So we're going to work hard to not have this be a classroom the next couple weeks. But I want to give an overview today of the Old Testament and next week of the New Testament that I hope will be helpful before we get into Genesis. Because here's one of the things that that works well here. When we do expositional study, exegetical study, which means we go verse by verse, book by book, imagine if you are in God's story, and God's story is like this city, that that, that is the, the walking down the streets, and that is walking down the alleys, and that's looking at the, the different doors and the different pathways and the different storefronts. And, and, and you know how we go. We go slowly when we do that. We're kind of strolling through God's Word. Sometimes we stand and stare at a lamppost, you know, for three weeks, and then we go another block, and then we stare at a door for a few weeks, and we're just taking it in, right? Some of you wish we'd move quicker, but it's like we kind of just take our time. So here's what we're doing today and next week. There's also a lot to be gained sometimes from getting in a plane and flying over the city and looking down at the city and seeing from beginning to end how everything fits together. So you can learn a lot walking down the streets and down the alleyways, but you can also learn a lot about the city when you fly overhead and you see the the, the planning that went into it and you see the structure and you see how everything came and fit together. That's what we want to do. This morning we want to do that by looking at the Old Testament. And I want you to see from Genesis to Malachi, I want you to see what God's story is. And I want to pull out a couple very important themes that are in the Old Testament that are going to be huge in the book of Genesis. So that needs specific prayer. So let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this book of Genesis. Thank you for inspiring Moses to write it. Thank you for the truth that's in it. God, and we pray, we, we ask, we plead that you would, you would take your word and impress it and, and stamp it on our hearts. That we would be changed because of it. If some of us have not understood the purpose and the point of this rich history before Christ. Help them to grasp it today. If there is a longing for you and a a desperation before you that we could gain in understanding this Old Testament that you've written, then we ask that you would grant that to us today. So God, may my words be pleasing to you and helpful for others We pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen.
the Bible is mostly either loved or hated by people today. Most people either love this book or they hate this book. Fifty years ago, the Soviet government uh, published a dictionary of foreign words. And in that dictionary of foreign words, they give a definition of the Bible. A terrible definition of the Bible. A definition that flows from a heart that hates the Bible. And it goes like this. The Bible, to be clear, this is not what we believe the Bible is. So don't write this down. The Bible is a collection of different legends, mutually contradictory and written at different times and full of historical errors issued by churches as a holy book. That's awful. That is not what the Bible is, and that is not what we believe the Bible is. And a definition like that is symbolic of the hatred that most, at least many people, have of the Bible. The Bible is not a collection of legends. The Bible is a collection of truth. The Bible is not full of contradiction. The Bible is written by God. The Bible is from God. And so if we think we found a contradiction, the contradiction is in our brain, not in the Bible. As well, the the Bible is not a book that is, quote, issued by churches as a holy book. We believe the Bible is issued by God as a holy book. It was not issued by churches, and it's churches that say this book is important, and this book is valuable, and this book is holy. It is God. God says, this is the book. So people, when they know what's in this book, it polarizes people. And they either love what God's word says or they hate what God's word says. But then we've got this other thing going on in the church and among Christians. And it's this. It's people who say they love this book but don't actually know what's in this book. And then they end up finding out what's in this book, and they no longer love the book. They hate the book. The Old Testament, especially, falls into that category of a part of the Bible that people may say they love because they know they're supposed to love it, but don't actually know what is in the Old Testament of the Bible. And so we want to know, and we're going to do that through going through the book of Genesis. We want to know what is in our Bible. We want to know what is in the Old Testament. We want to know what the Old Testament is about. We want to know what's in here that God wants us to know because we see it as God's book. Martin Luther said it like this. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has Feet. You maybe didn't know that. It runs after me, he said. It has hands. It takes hold of me. Now, some of you hear that and you just think, what the? That makes no sense at all. You might not know what's in this book. Some of you hear a quote like that and you know exactly what he means. You know this book is alive. You know that they are not just words. They are words from God. 
You know that this book has feet and that it runs after you. You know you've been going in one direction and you heard God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit and it stopped you in your tracks and it changed your path. You know that God's word has hands and that sometimes it lays its hands and takes hold of you. Sometimes you're on this path and it picks you up and puts you on this path. Sometimes you're running in the wrong direction and it grabs hold of you when you hear the word of God and it stops you, not only stops you, but leads you to repentance. It turns you around, spins you around and pushes you in the right direction. And some of you, you've been jerked around by God's word like that. You know, you know how significant this book is because what we have here is God's revelation. Not just the book of revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, this is God's revelation to us. Here's the deal. I know you've heard me say this before. We do not find God by seeking Him. We find God by Him revealing Himself to us. Which is good news. Because it's not just those who are the smartest and, and the brightest and the most open and are the best at hide and seek spiritually. Okay, because none of us can find God just by seeking Him. The only way we find God, the only way we know God, the only way we learn about God is if He reveals Himself to us. If He condescends and comes down to us and reveals Himself to us. And God has chosen to reveal Himself the most through this book, the Bible. That's it, the Bible. Some of you wish that God revealed more. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, 29 speaks to that. There are mysteries. There are things that we, we don't know that we're not going to know. We need to be content with this. God has said, this is what you need to know. And this is everything you need to know for a godly life that loves God and honors God and follows after God. And God has revealed himself to us in this book. So we read it because we want to know God and we want to learn about God. We read this because we want to know who we are. And we want to understand ourselves. We want to understand the world that we live in. And so we go to what the creator of us has to say about us. And we want to know what the purpose is in life. And we want to know what the meaning is in life. And so we go here because here we find God's purpose and meaning for this life. We want answers to our questions. Tragedy strikes and we have questions and we want to know and we're looking for answers and questions we didn't even know that we had come to mind. And so we go here, we go to God's revelation and we say, God, answer, answer our questions as you will and give us truth and speak to our minds and speak to our hearts and reveal yourself to us through your word. And in this book, we learn, I think most profoundly, we learn the character of God. God is transcendent. He is beyond us. You don't have a phone. You don't have him in your contact list. You don't have a, a book outside of the Bible where you can just go in your encyclopedia and look him up. You will only know God through this book. And here we learn of the character of God. He reveals himself to us. I'm a good God, I'm a gracious God, I'm a merciful God, I'm a just God, I'm a patient God, and on and on and on, we learn of the character of God. But many today, I suspect, 
even those who would call themselves Christians, so they might not use this word this strongly, despise not only this book, but the Old Testament in particular. Some of you, you have books in the Old Testament that you, you do not read. Like you read Numbers once. I am never reading that again. Or you read some real difficult passages in Ezekiel. And you're like, I'm not going to read that again. And there's a despising that you struggle with in the Old Testament. Oh, it's too long. It's too cryptic. It's too depressing. Too discouraging. And so how do we typically use the Old Testament? I don't think typically we really understand the Old Testament. I hope we will today a bit. We don't typically really understand the Old Testament and use the Old Testament the way we should use the Old Testament. We kind of just, we veggie tail the Old Testament. Do you know, as those of you who watch Veggie Tales, do you know what I mean by that? Veggie tailing the Old Testament, where we just kind of pull out little stories, right, and characters here and there. And we, we pull them out, and then we give edited versions of them. Believe me, we're going to read the book of Genesis. You're going to get unedited versions of our heroes. And we give edited versions to kids through cartoons and present them as examples of morality to emulate. Right? So be a Noah. Except don't get drunk and pass out in a tent. Because we're going to read that story. Or be a Daniel, be a Jeremiah, be a Moses. And we just, we just sort of pull out stories. For many of you, that's your understanding of the Old Testament. And we pull out these heroes, and then we present them as these moral examples that we are to emulate. But this is what the Old Testament does. The Old Testament provides the context for the New Testament. The Old Testament is what helps us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and why Jesus lived and died the way Jesus lived and died. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, we will not understand the New Testament. So if you're like, I'm just going to read the New Testament and I'm not going to read the Old, you're not going to understand fully what you're reading unless you understand the Old. You're not going to treasure, we're not going to treasure Christ unless we really understand the Old Testament and what life was like for at least thousands and thousands of years before Jesus even came. So we need to go back, we need to understand, we need to read it, we need to read it all, because God has said it is all good, it is all useful, it is all profitable, so read it. So an aerial view. Aerial view is what we want to do in the Old Testament. First, if you want, you can open up to your table of contents. You see 39 books. And here's how it's organized, and then we'll get going. Some of you know this if you were... You made it to the last round of Bible Bowl. You know, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And here's how they're organized. Okay, you've got five books. They're in groupings. You've got five books, 12 books, five books, five books, and 12 books. 
Okay, your first five books are commonly called the books of the law or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. A lot of history and law in these books. Following them, you have 12 more books of history. Joshua through Esther. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So you group these first 17 books together, and you have 17 books of history in your Old Testament. These first 17 books give us an account of God's history from creation up until the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. 17 books. Then you have five books that are very personal writings, right? A lot of poetry. And these are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So 17 books of history, and then five books that are a personal reflection of those who are living in the history described in those first 17 books. And then you have 17 more books, which are the prophets, and those books are God's commentary of what is happening throughout the history described in those first 17 books. So think of it as 17, 5, and 17. 17 books, historical account of what God has done providentially through history. Five books written by people from within that history. Personal accounts of their relationship with God. And then 17 more books that are God's prophets. Five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. That's not varsity and junior varsity. That's not the good prophets and the prophets on the bench. That is big books, smaller books. That's all it means. But 17 books of prophets, God speaking through his prophets, speaking through his preachers throughout that history, giving God himself, giving his commentary on what he's doing in the world and why he's doing it and what he will do. This is Genesis through Malachi. But now three things I'd like to look at. Three Three words, and we'll unpack each one. History, holiness, and hope. History, holiness, and hope. I want to run through and give the history. There's a timeline. Pretty brief, skipping a lot I know, but looking at the the peaks. Genesis through Malachi, let's get a grip on the history that we have in the Old Testament. And then two themes that jump out that are going to be very important in our study of Genesis that we find in the Old Testament first, and that is these themes of holiness and hope. That's where we're going. History, holiness, and hope. First, let's look at the, the history. If you want, you can even look at your, your table of contents. I mean, this is how we're going, to, we're going to work through this. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you see the phrase, in the beginning. Your Bible starts with creation. So that the history book that we have, thankfully, goes all the way back to the beginning of history as we know it. And it tells us there that something came out of nothing. And don't even try to understand that. Just don't, don't even bother. There was nothing, and then God created something. What did He use to create that something? And the answer is nothing. 
He made something from nothing. And we, we read about it in the book of Genesis in the first couple chapters. He created the sun, the stars, the land, the sea. We know that God created all these things and that God, Colossians tells us, through Christ, holds all these things together. The neutrons, the electrons, the protons. God is holding all of this together. God is holding matter together. The sun came up this morning. We believe this, right? The sun came up this morning because God said, do it again. And Lord willing, tomorrow he'll say, do it again. And you should look. My son and I were just driving into church this morning, looking around for things we're thankful for. And the first thing he said was the sun. We look at the sun like that's amazing. Does that amaze you anymore? I have to stop and think about it. But that's amazing. There it is again. Same place as yesterday. That's amazing. It's bright. I can see in front of me. I can feel warmth from the sun. That's amazing. It's because God created something from nothing. I'm going to have to move I'm going to have to move quicker, especially we're going to get to a lot of this when we, when we study through the book of, of Genesis. So I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to discipline myself now, and we're going, to, we're going to move through this. God created the sun, the stars, the land, the sea, and, and then God's creation culminated with the creation of mankind. Okay, this was the culmination of God's creation because He created man very different from anything else. He created man to be an image bearer of Himself. So you see God's glory in a lot of things. and You can see God's glory in His creation. But you see God's glory most in His creation of man and woman. And man and woman are very different than anything else. Even animals, animal lovers. This is why murder is a sin, but killing a cow and grilling it is not a sin. Because a cow is not an image bearer of God. It is a soulless beast that is delicious. (laughs) But man is very different. Because God created man, it was the height of his creation. And the reason he created man is because we've talked about God's purpose in all things is God is displaying his glory, displaying his beauty, displaying his character. Okay, God is very much a look at me, look at me, look at me, God. And that's the most loving thing that he can do. Because when you look at God, you're totally content, you're totally satisfied, you're totally at peace because you are looking at the only thing that is truly beautiful. So God is doing that by creating then man and woman to be literally replicas of himself. So that we should see in man and in woman, we should see the glory of God. We should see something of God. We should be reminded of the goodness of God. Everything was wonderful. Everything was perfect. He put them in this garden of Eden and it was was beautiful. But it didn't last long. Right, Genesis chapter 3. Perhaps the most important chapter for understanding your Bible in your Bible. If, 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 if like your child tears out Genesis 3, you're in trouble. You're not going to have a clue what's going on the rest of the book. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about what we've called for centuries the fall. The fall. Here man and woman were created in the garden, obeying, honoring God, glorifying Him, perfectly imaging God in His creation, and then they stepped off a cliff, if you will. And they sinned 
disobeyed God, and sin entered the world. And when that happened, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it was catastrophic, it was cataclysmic. It affected not only them and their immediate family, but their family after them, which is you and me. All of their descendants were affected by this fall, and we have all fallen. When Adam and Eve fell, we fell. They were our representatives. They were our greatest grandparents. And we have all, in our lifetime, done the same kind of things that they did and eaten the fruit that God has told us not to eat and disobeyed Him and not done what we should have done and done what we should not have done. As we read that, it just starts unraveling. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about Cain and Abel. We read about the effects of sin. And we start to see the reality of of the desperate situation that God's creation is in before Him. Adam and Eve have two kids. They have other kids. They have two, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then we read, as we continue on in the Old Testament, mankind continues to degenerate for generations until God destroys the entire world by the flood, saving only Noah and his family. God gets to a point, wipes out, destroys the entire world that is degenerated into sin so badly, wipes out the entire world except for one family in an ark, and it's Noah and his family. Generations continue to degenerate until mankind rebels at the Tower of Babel. Another great story we're going to read, Genesis chapter 11. Can't wait to get there. So they continue to go downhill, continue to sin. Man gets to the point where he is so arrogant, so arrogant and so worshipful of himself that he believes that he is actually greater than God. They begin putting their heads together and are just amazed that they're able to build this tower. Remember the story? And they actually begin building it up and think that they can build a tower to basically get to heaven on themselves. It's like this monument of how great and wonderful they are. And so God gets robbed of glory. They're not worshiping Him. And then one of the funniest stories in your Bible. Do you remember how God stops them? How He keeps them from building this tower? How, how He keeps them from being, you know, coming together and engineering great things? He confuses their languages. So they all get up for work one morning, right? Heading out to work on the Tower of Babel, and no one can understand each other. It's like, here, hand me the two-by-four, and no hablo inglés. And they just start missing each other, and no one understands, and then God disperses them over the earth. And you see God doing this. In response to man's sin, in response to man's arrogance. Then Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he makes to Abraham a great promise. He promises Abraham that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. He's going to give him a new home and many descendants. And the whole earth will be blessed through his family. We read on and see that that's happening. Abraham's family grows and grows. He gave him many descendants including a grandson named Jacob. God would change Jacob's name to Israel. For a brief time, we read that God's people, God's family, they enjoy prosperity for a brief time until they are enslaved under Pharaoh by the Egyptians. But even there, they continue to grow. We think to around 2 million people. In Exodus, we read of the Exodus... God's people 
are rescued from Egypt, taken from Pharaoh under the leadership of Moses. Then God gives Israel in the wilderness under Moses. God gives Israel his law. Moses writes it down. We have this in Genesis through Deuteronomy. He gives them his law, which establishes them as a real nation. He leads them to the promised land and fulfills much of what he had promised Abraham. And then God, again, what is he doing through people? He's displaying his glory. He's displaying his character. Okay, but we are marred images, images that are marred by sin, not good, pure representatives of him. And so God leaves his people, takes them to the promised land, and he leaves Israel there to display his character to the nations around them. And instead, when you read, you read that rather than displaying God's good character, they typically display their rebellion. They display their sinfulness. They display their disobedience. You see this throughout the book of Judges, right? Where there's these men ruling over them, and there's this cycle of God's people disobeying and then becoming desperate, and then God delivering them. And then how do they respond to God's deliverance? They go right back to being disobedient, becoming desperate. And again, God delivers them. And over and over and over again, as these marred images okay, display more of their rebellion than God's character to the nations around them. Okay, we read on and centuries pass and Israel says, hey, we want a king. We want, God, we know you're our king, but we want an earthly king. Why? Because all the other nations had earthly kings and they wanted to be like them. They wanted to please them. So God said, okay, I'll give you a king. He gave him Saul, a bad king. Then he gives him two good kings, David and Solomon. And that's probably the height of strength and glory for Israel, for God's people, for this family, for this kingdom is under the rule of David and Solomon. But then Solomon dies and Rehoboam takes over and then the kingdom splits in two. It's called the divided kingdom that you read in the rest of your Old Testament. The north and the south, Israel and Judah, they continue to worship idols. They continue to rebel against God. And so eventually God hands the north over to the Assyrians. And then a couple centuries later, he hands the south over to Babylon. There's some survivors like Daniel and Ezekiel who are taken into exile into Babylon where they are for 70 years. And after 70 years, the Babylonians have been displaced now and the Persians are ruling And the Persians, after 70 years of exile, send a remnant, the survivors of God's people, back. And under men like Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple is rebuilt, the wall is rebuilt. But the glory of this family, this kingdom, this people, never was again what it was under the likes of David and Solomon. They're still here. They were still desperate. They were still longing for something, still struggling to obey God, struggling to honor God under the burden of their sin. And there we find them at the Old Testament, perfectly positioned for the Savior to come and rescue them. In a nutshell, that's the history we find in our Old Testament. Now, two themes that you can hear, I think in just the historical account that we just looked at. But let's, let's bring them up specifically. Holiness and hope. The first thing in regards to holiness that we need to see 
in the Old Testament is that clearly God is very angry with His people. God is angry with His people. That's why many don't like to read the Old Testament. Oh, he's just so upset. That's horrible and, and terrible. And right, I mean, there's, there are some difficult, difficult things to read in the Old Testament. Now, some people make the mistake of thinking that God is angry in the Old Testament and he's nice in the New Testament. Like he was really angry and just kind of figuring things out. Didn't have his medications straight. And then God got it all figured out. You know, someone gave him a cuddle. And, and then the New Testament is happy God. But the truth is, God is angry in the Old Testament. God is angry in the New Testament. God is an angry God. God is a God who is, is, fulling, is, is, is full of, of, of wrath. Right? There's this cup that he has that he pours out, right? And it's described as his cup of wrath. There's lots of anger that you read about in the New Testament. Read about Jesus with the money changers in the temple. Or read Revelation. And read about the anger that's coming. And read about the fury of God in the wine press. But we do see in the Old Testament clearly that God is angry with His people. The reason that God is angry with His people is due to this character trait of God that is the most important character trait of God. God is lots of character traits, right? I mean, God is love. God is mercy. God is patient. God is forbearing. God is kind. I mean, God is all these, all these things. Not to diminish any of those character traits. But there is one character trait from which all other character traits flow from God. And it is this character trait that is the, the root of His anger. Or his, his anger in the world and His anger with His people is because He is this kind of God. And that character trait is God's holiness. God is holy. And that is the most important aspect of God's character. The word holy means, it means set apart. It means cut off. It means severed. It means different. It means unlike. And God is totally holy. There is no other God. God is in a class all by Himself. We may image God. And there may be things about us and how He's made us that point to God and reflect His image. And we may as Christians become more like God and better testimonies of Him. But we are not God. And we will never be God. And God has absolutely no competition. Satan and God are not in the same class. Satan is not God's competition. Satan is God's dog. On a leash. Not going anywhere unless God permits him to go there. 
So God, he is in a class all by himself. And the word we use to describe that is holy. And the Bible speaks of God's holiness in ways it doesn't speak about anything else about God. There's been books recently like Love Wins that make it sound like the love of God is his foremost character trait and is not true. Holy wins. God's holiness is first and foremost. And it is from his holiness. And because God is holy, that in the Old Testament we see that he is angry with his people. In the Hebrew language... In the language that your Bible was written, there are literary techniques that are used to emphasize how important something is. And in the Hebrew language in which your Old Testament was written, the way something would be emphasized would be by taking a word and repeating that word. See, maybe when you mean something, you say you're trying to be serious with somebody and they're not being serious with you and you start to get frustrated and you want them to know, no, you're really serious. And so you say, no, I'm really serious right now. And they still laugh. And so what do you do? You just say, really, again. I'm really, really serious right now. It's not that different from what the Bible does. It's like when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. The author just didn't have Tourette's. He didn't just accidentally write truly again. Or verily, verily, the King James Version, I say to you. That's on purpose. When Jesus was talking, say, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, pay attention to what I'm going to say. I'm trying to emphasize this. Well, there's only one word in your Bible, only one word in your Bible that is used three times in a row to emphasize how serious it is. And it is this character trait of God. What do the angels sing? Holy, holy, holy. In Revelation, what do we read? That they're around God singing. Holy, holy, holy. What are they saying? God, you're a lot of things. But what you are most of all is you are holy. You are totally holy. Different, unique, in a class all by yourself. Perfect. Perfect. Without sin. Without stain, without blemish. What do we all have? We have stains. Do you not have stains? That you wish you didn't have? Do you not have stains that in Christ you're told to be cleansed from, but you still do not feel cleansed from? Is the testimony of our own soul not that there is filth within? That there is uncleanness? We are sinful people. Sin is the opposite of holiness. And God is furious over sin. God is angry because God is holy. God is angry because He is not indifferent to sin and the suffering and the pain it causes. Have you not felt anger over sin? Have you not seen suffering and pain that has happened in our nation over the last couple weeks that has led you to feeling anger in your soul? Well, what the Bible does is it, it flattens sin and says, well, Some sin may be more grievous and some sin may hurt others in 
far worse ways. And some sin may have greater consequences. All sin is the same in the sense that it is offensive to God. And it separates us from God. So imagine the anger that you feel when you look at publicized, grievous sin and know that this is God's heart toward all sin, including the sin in your heart. So as we read about God's people being rebellious and rebellious and rebellious in the Old Testament, it is no wonder that God is angry with His people because God is a holy God. And so that is established in the Old Testament. God is telling His people, I am holy, you are not like me. You want to come see me? You've got to come to a temple. Remember that? Moses wants to see God and God says, no, you don't. He says, yes, I do. He says, no, you don't. And God just lets a portion of his backside, whatever that is, and his glory pass before Moses and it lit him up like a Christmas tree. And he almost died. And he came down the mountain and everybody could tell that he had been with God. And then God sets up this temple with two rooms in it. And only certain people can go in the first room. And only one person in all of Israel can go in the inner room. And he can only do that on one day of the year. And he had to do all of these rituals before he even went in there. What is God saying? I am holy. You can't just waltz into my presence. You are nothing like me. There is a curtain here. You can't handle me. You can't handle my presence. These things are too great. They are too wonderful for you. I am perfect. And the imperfect cannot be in the presence of the perfect. And so God's holiness is clear throughout the Old Testament. So here's how God, here's how God deals with that and still has relationship with His people. God is this holy, in one sense, unapproachable God that is totally unlike His people Israel. But yet we see that that God made a way in the Old Testament, didn't He? He made a way for His people to be in relationship with Him. He made a way for His people to come to Him and to pray to Him and to commune with Him. And so God introduces this word in the Old Testament of atonement. We've got to understand this word. Atonement. Or at-one-ment. Atonement is what must happen if two are going to be brought together. An atonement is simply this. An atonement is an offering. An offering that is offered that takes two enemies and makes them friends. If two enemies are going to be reconciled, God's Word says, atonement must take place. Not just I'm sorry. Not just I'll never do it again. Not just reparation. Not just restitution. Atonement must take place. Something must be offered significant if these two enemies are going to be made friends. And then we see that God leads His people. And says, this is what this will look like sacrifices. As you've read that, right? You've read this about the sacrificial system. 
is in the Old Testament. You read about God defining it real specifically through Moses. But you see even before that, even Cain and Abel are bringing offerings and trying to appease God and trying to be reconciled to God. And there's just with an innate knowledge that, 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 that something must be offered to at least placate this God and to be reconciled to Him. And then God through Moses brings this very specific definition of how God's wrath could be turned aside. And God said, through this sacrificial system, sinners could seek to restore their relationship with God through these sacrifices. And so you had families doing this. You had individuals doing this. You had high priests doing this on behalf of the people. Making atonement. Offering something so that the two could be reconciled. So the life of an unblemished animal. The life of an unblemished animal symbolized by its blood, would be given in exchange for the life of the guilty worshiper. This is why they were making sacrifices in the Old Testament. The sacrifices were meant to be a price and a penalty that was paid for the people's sin. And so you remember what they would even do when they would offer the sacrifice. Remember they would lay their hand on the lamb that was to be slaughtered. And the reason they would lay their hand on the lamb that was to be slaughtered is because it was to be symbolic of their guilt being transferred from themselves to God. And the hope was that through the life of this animal being extinguished, that that would delay the wrath that God's people deserved. And so they make these sacrifices over and over and over again. But we see that they were not a solution. And we see this for one reason is they had to offer them over and over again. Right? One, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest on behalf of God's people for the forgiveness of all their sins, right, in a very special way, he would present a sacrifice to God. He would sacrifice a lamb, and it was to be to delay God's wrath on his people. But if that's all it took, then why did they do it the next year? Why did God require that they would do this year after year after year? Because it wasn't enough. That should make sense to us. Do we really think that the sins of the world can be taken care of by the blood of a lamb? And then in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3, the New Testament looks back and and clarifies and says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So God said with his people, right, angry with his people, God is a holy God. But there is a way, there is a way that we can deal with this and God's way is atonement. That something must be offered to make two enemies friends again. But then we see, and God's people knew, and God's people felt that this still was not enough. 
So you have God's holiness clearly declared. And then the reality that we are not holy. That even God's people in the Old Testament, the sacrifice and the Lamb, it did not make them holy. It did not make them fit for God's presence. Fit for heaven, if you will. Still offensive as we are. Atonement can only happen, then, we see, when the innocent dies in the place of the guilty. But innocent animals were not enough to propitiate God's wrath, only enough to delay God's wrath. The next word is hope. Because when you just look at this, and when you just see God's holiness, and you just read these verses of the Old Testament, it should leave you feeling desperate. This should be the condition of all of us before we were Christians or if you're not a Christian today. In your life, you have your own sacrificial system. You have some things that are maybe delaying God's wrath, but they're not getting rid of God's wrath. And you may have rules that you follow and legalisms that you follow and justifications for why you're good and why God's going to be pleased with you and why he's going to pat you on the back and say, gee, I'm glad you're finally here, but they really don't pan out. It's just a truth that you've made up, but you're staking everything on a truth that you've made up. And so you are, like God's people were in the Old Testament, desperate still. I mean, God said in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the first half of the verse is good and encouraging, but I think the second half is frightening. God said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is good news. But the bad news comes after the word but in verse 7. But God is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Are you guilty? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. God's people heard Moses say this and say, Thus saith the Lord, God will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, they knew they were obeying God. They knew they were delaying His wrath. They knew that they were sacrificing animals the way God had called them to. They'd set up the tabernacle. They they were following all of the rules. But they knew that their sin was so grievous that they still had a price to pay. There was no free pass. And the sacrifices of these animals were not going to cut it. And then it was reinforced when you hear this truth that God will by no means clear the guilty. And we're all looking at one another as guilty people saying, well, does that mean that God is not going to clear me? Or when God says in Proverbs seventeen fifteen, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So what God says in Proverbs 17, 15 is God says, there is something that is an abomination to me. It is abominable. I have infinite hate towards this thing, and it is this, justifying the wicked. Well, I'm wicked, and I want to be justified. Are you wicked? And do you want to be justified? So if you're among God's Old Testament people, you are longing for something else. You are hoping for something else because you know that without something else, He's not going to clear you as the guilty party. And you know that you're wicked and He's not going to justify you because for God to justify 
your wickedness would be to wink at your wickedness or to sweep your wickedness under the carpet. And he is a good, holy and just God. And he will not do that. So what is to keep you and I, what is to keep Israel, what is to keep these people who are making these sacrifices from one day dying and finally suffering the punishment that was due them? God's wrath not delayed any longer, but then poured out on them. So the question is, does the Old Testament say anything else? Is there a message of hope in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. Friends, God is is angry with His people. But do you know the other wonderful truth that radiates now and in the Old Testament? God is devoted to His people. God loves His people. You see this over and over again in the Old Testament. God is angry with His people. He is telling them, I am angry with you. I am furious with you. You have God at times saying, I'm going to send my wrath. You're going to suffer. There's going to be consequences for this. You cannot just trample on my name. You cannot just hurt my people. You cannot disregard my law. You cannot live like this and not have consequences. And I'm going to deal with you out of my anger. But you have God saying things when he does that, like, but I will not make an end of you. I will not make an end of you. And they had hope, just like we have hope, because of the reality that we are still here. The fact that you are still breathing right now is only due to the fact that God is merciful. He must be merciful. I know my own sin. I know my own sin. And I wonder if I've caused more hurt than help in this world. And I'm still here. And I don't deserve the gifts God has given me. I don't deserve the favor God has given me. I don't deserve the blessings God has given me. There's nothing in me that makes me better than any of you. And yet I'm blessed. Conclusion. God must be merciful. God must be kind. And God's people saw this throughout the Old Testament. How many times did they look at each other and say, we're still here. Why are we still here? How can we still be here? But there is even more reason. Not just God's patience, but God's promises. Okay, this is it. This is it. This is the good news. This is the gospel. God is angry with his people, but God is devoted to his people. We'll look at this in our sermon series. God is in covenant with his people. He has made no matter what commitments to his children. No matter what commitments. God loves his children. God loves his people. He never gives up on his people. And so we see another reason for hope that is weaved throughout the Old Testament, and they are the promises of God. God is promising throughout the Old Testament to his desperate, sinful people, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. 
These sacrifices, God, we know they're, they're, they're not satisfying your wrath. They're, they're delaying your wrath. We're still sinful. The, our sins are building up. We're, we're objects of wrath. How can this And God is telling them throughout the Old Testament, through his prophets, I will rescue you. Obey me. Honor me. I will rescue you. And do you know where that promise starts? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The same chapter of the fall. In the very same chapter where Adam and Eve turn from God and rebel from God and are cursed by God, in the very same chapter, God gives them a tiny, tiny glimpse of hope. And what you have in your Old Testament is that hope getting more and more and more clear until the light of the world finally comes when Christ our Savior is born. But God gave His people for a reason hope in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's been called by scholars the Proto-Evangelion. It is the very first declaration of the good news of the gospel. Listen to what God said. Adam and Eve sinned, feeling the consequences of their sin, knowing that they have fallen, knowing what is due them, knowing the separation between them and God, a very real enemy, literally a dragon in the garden, serpent, Satan himself. Very clear, God and an enemy. And we have turned from God and to the enemy. And we now are under a curse and we feel the weight and we feel the burden and we are destined for nothing good now. And then God comes down and says to the dragon in front of Adam and Eve. You've got to picture this. He says to the dragon, here basically, let me summarize, is how history is going to unfold. Basically, you will not have the last word, Satan. There will be strife. There will be war. This will be battle between your offspring and hers. Between my children, between mankind and you and your demonic forces. This world will be a spiritual war zone. But there is one very special child. Her offspring. And he's talking about one baby in particular who we just celebrated the birth of. And so he looks at the dragon and says, this is how it's going to play out. It's going to be a war zone until the offspring is born. And you're going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. So God is giving this little little pinhole of light that is looking forward to the cross. When Satan will wound the heel, the crucifixion of the Son of God, but the Son of God will render a death blow to the head of the dragon, and God will be victorious. So what is God telling Adam and Eve? One, I haven't killed you, I haven't wiped you out, I'm obviously patient and loving and kind, and I'm going to send a rescuer. There will not always be enmity. I will send one who will conquer and be victorious. And then you read your Old Testament and you just read that God makes that light a little brighter, a little brighter, a little brighter. 
more specific, more specific, more specific. Until Jesus is born and lives to be about 33, and we'll look at next week, and starts telling people, I'm here. I'm here. The rescue party has arrived. Your Old Testament is is full of anger. It is full of the holiness of God. The Old Testament is full of hope. Do you see why God had His people sacrifice unblemished animals the way they did? Do you see what it was preparing them for? Do you see why Jesus said, I am the Lamb of God? Y'all have been bringing your lambs and your unblemished sheep to try to delay the wrath of God. But God has now sent His Lamb, His perfect, spotless Lamb. And Jesus lays Himself on the altar and sacrifices Himself willingly. And God the Father, remember Isaiah said, it was the will of God to crush Him. It was God's will to unleash His stored up wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, so that Jesus could be the final sacrifice in our place. This is why we do not make sacrifices anymore. This is why we do not offer lambs anymore. We praise and sing about the God who offered the lamb in our place. So the Old Testament is a message of great hope. And even in Genesis, we will see the holiness of God and when we see the hope that we have in God. And we must remember, we'll come back to this over and over and over again, and I'll close with this thought. We must remember our sinfulness before a holy God. When we read, for example, the story of Noah, People have struggled for generations and look at the story of the flood and say, how could God do that? How could God wipe out the entire world? We should read the story of Noah, for example, and say to ourselves, how could God do that? And mean How could God save Noah? How could God save this family? See, as Americans who think that we're great and wonderful and perfect and unblemished, we struggle with God's wrath and and God's anger because we do not think that we deserve such things. Friends, we do deserve such things. We do. We're an unholy, sinful people before a holy God. And we have all rebelled grievously against Him. 
Some of you are just indifferent to God. But that's not just. Indifference is horrible. The God who has loved you and provided for you and given you every breath, and we're indifferent to Him. We must understand the wrath that we deserve from a holy God and marvel at stories like Noah's Ark that God didn't just wipe everyone out and leave it as a display of justice, but that He displayed His mercy by saving one family. We're going to see. Some of you were raised to think that God looked all over and all over and all over and finally found one who had intrinsic goodness within him, and it was Noah. And so he was able to save that one. You can't read about the life of Noah and believe that for very long. He was a flawed, sinful man. But God saved him because God is gracious. If you're a Christian, God saved you because God is gracious. And He did all the work in you and for you. If you are not a Christian, know that there is a gracious God who is calling out to you right now and saying, you are foolish to continue away from Me. Turn to Me and be saved. Repent. Turn from your sin. And turn to Christ. And know Him, believe Him, love Him, obey Him, enjoy Him, proclaim Him. Take Him as your Lord and your Savior and your treasure. Believe what this preacher is saying to be truth. Because it is. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word again. And we ask that you would, whatever it is that you desire for us to know and to believe, you would cause us to know and to believe even now. God, we thank you for the blessings that you've poured out on us. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room would enjoy the gifts that You've given, thanking You for the gifts that You've given. They they would not enjoy the gifts that You've given apart from You, thereby just storing up wrath for themselves. Pray that they would give credit where credit is due and thank You and, and honor You. You would open their hearts, open their minds, open their eyes, open their ears. God, I pray that you help all of us, including myself. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to desire holiness. To live in a way where our lives are a testimony of your, of your goodness and not of our sinfulness. Bless this time of communion. Pray you make it especially meaningful to us. We remember your body and your blood. Jesus Christ, His blood spilt for us, Your perfect Lamb dying as our substitute, our great atonement. We love You and give You all praise and honor and glory.
We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.